Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Transfer by Algernon Blackwood The child first began to cry in the early afternoon, about three o'clock to be exact. I remember the hour because I had been listening with secret relief to the sound of the departing carriage, those wheels fading into distance down the gravel drive with Mrs. Fren and her daughter Gladys, to whom I was governess, meant for me some hour's welcome rest, and the June day was oppressively hot. Moreover, there was this excitement in the little country household that had told upon us all, but especially upon myself, this excitement running delicately behind all the events of the morning, was due to some mystery, and the mystery was, of course, kept concealed from the governess. I had exhausted myself with guessing and keeping on the watch, for some deep and unexplained anxiety possessed me, so that I kept thinking of my sister's dictum that I was really much too sensitive to make a good governess, and that I should have done far better as a professional clairvoyant. Mr. Fren, Sr., Uncle Frank, was expected for an unusual visit from town, about tea-time. That I knew. I also knew that his visit was concerned somehow with the future welfare of little Jamie, Gladys's seven-year-old brother. More than this, indeed, I never knew. And this missing link makes my story in a fashion incoherent, an important bit of the strange puzzle left out. I only gathered that the visit of Uncle Frank was of a condescending nature, that Jamie was told he must be upon his very best behaviour to make a good impression, and that Jamie, who had never seen his uncle, dreaded him horribly already in advance. Then, trailing thinly through the dying crunch of the carriage wheels this sultry afternoon, I heard the curious little wail of the child's crying, with the effect, wholly unaccountable, that every nerve in my body shot its bolt electrically, bringing me to my feet with a tingling of unequivocal alarm. Positively, the water ran into my eyes. I recalled his white distress that morning when told that Uncle Frank was motoring down for tea, and that he was to be very nice indeed to him. It had gone into me like a knife. All through the day, indeed, had run this nightmare quality of terror and vision. "'The man with the enormous face?' he had asked in a little voice of awe, and then gone speechless from the room in tears that no amount of soothing management could calm. That was all I saw, and what he meant by the enormous face gave me only a sense of vague presentiment. But it came as anticlimax somehow, a sudden revelation of the mystery and excitement that pulsed beneath the quiet of the stifling summer day. I feared for him, for of all that commonplace household I loved Jamie best, though professionally I had nothing to do with him. He was a high-strung, ultra-sensitive child, and it seemed to me that no one understood him, least of all his honest, tender-hearted parents, so that his little wailing voice brought me from my bed to the window in a moment, like a call for help. The haze of June lay over that big garden like a blanket. The wonderful flowers, which were Mr. Friend's delight, hung motionless. The lawns, so soft and thick, cushioned all other sounds. Only the limes and huge clumps of gelder roses hummed with bees. Through this muted atmosphere of heat and haze, 
The sound of the child's crying floated faintly to my ears, from a distance. Indeed, I wonder now that I heard it at all, for the next moment I saw him down beyond the garden, standing in his white sailor-suit alone, two hundred yards away. He was down by the ugly patch where nothing grew—the forbidden corner. A faintness then came over me at once—a faintness as of death, when I saw him there, of all places, where he never was allowed to go, and where, moreover, he was usually too terrified to go. To see him standing solitary in that singular spot, above all to hear him crying there, bereft me momentarily of the power to act. Then, before I could recover my composure sufficiently to call him in, Mr. Friend came round the corner from the lower farm with the dogs, and, seeing his son, performed that office for me. In his loud, good-natured, hearty voice he called him, and Jamie turned and ran, as though some spell had broken just in time, ran into the open arms of his fond but uncomprehending father, who carried him indoors on his shoulder, while asking, what all this hubbub was about. And, at their heels, the tailless sheepdogs followed, barking loudly, and performing what Jamie called their gravel-dance, because they ploughed up the moist, rolled gravel with their feet. I stepped back swiftly from the window, lest I should be seen. Had I witnessed the saving of the child from fire or drowning, the relief could hardly have been greater. Only Mr. Friend, I felt sure, would not say and do the right thing quite. He would protect the boy from his own vain imaginings, yet not with the explanation that could really heal. They disappeared behind the rose-trees, making for the house. I saw no more till later, when Mr. Friend, Sr., arrived. To describe the ugly patch as singular is hard to justify, perhaps, yet some such word is what the entire family sought, though never—oh, never—used. To Jamie and myself— though equally we never mentioned it. That treeless, flowerless spot was more than singular. It stood at the far end of the magnificent rose-garden, a bald, sore place, where the black earth showed uglily in winter, almost like a piece of dangerous bog, and in summer baked and cracked with fissures where green lizards shot their fire in passing. In contrast to the rich luxuriance of the whole amazing garden, it was like a glimpse of death amid life, a centre of disease that cried for healing, lest it spread. But it never did spread. Behind it stood the thick wood of silver birches, and, glimmering beyond, the orchard meadow, where the lambs played. The gardeners had a very simple explanation of its barrenness, that the water all drained off it, owing to the lie of the slopes immediately about it holding no remnant to keep the soil alive. I cannot say. It was Jamie—Jamie who felt its spell and haunted it, who spent whole hours there, even while afraid, and for whom it was finally labelled strictly out of bounds, because it stimulated his already big imagination—not wisely, but too darkly. It was Jamie who buried ogres there, and heard it crying in an earthy voice, swore that it shook its surface sometimes while he watched it, and secretly gave it food in the form of birds or mice or rabbits he found dead upon his wanderings. And it was Jamie who put so extraordinarily into words the feeling that the horrid spot had given me from the moment I first saw it. 
It's bad, Miss Gould, he told me. But, Jamie, nothing in nature is bad exactly, only different from the rest sometimes. Miss Gould, if you please, then it's empty. It's not fed. It's dying because it can't get the food it wants. And when I stared into the little pale face where the eyes shone so dark and wonderful, seeking within myself for the right thing to say to him, he added with an emphasis and conviction that made me suddenly turn cold. Miss Gould, he always used my name like this in all his sentences, it's hungry, don't you see? But I know what would make it feel all right. Only the conviction of an earnest child, perhaps, could have made so outrageous a suggestion worth listening to for an instant. But for me, who felt that things an imaginative child believed were important, it came with a vast disquieting shock of reality. Jamie, in this exaggerated way, had caught at the edge of a shocking fact. A hint of dark, undiscovered truth had leaped into that sensitive imagination. Why there lay horror in the woods, I cannot say. But I think some power of darkness trooped across the suggestion of that sentence, at the end. I know what would make it feel all right. I remember that I shrank from asking explanation. Small groups of other words, veiled fortunately by his silence, gave life to an unspeakable possibility that hitherto had lain at the back of my own consciousness. The way it sprang to life proves, I think, that my mind already contained it. The blood rushed from my heart as I listened. I remember that my knees shook. Jamie's idea was, had been all along, my own as well. And now, as I lay down on my bed and thought about it all, I understood why the coming of his uncle involved somehow an experience that wrapped terror at its heart with a sense of nightmare certainty that left me too weak to resist the preposterous idea, too shocked indeed to argue or reason it away, this certainty came with its full black blast of conviction. And the only way I can put it into words, since nightmare horror really is not properly tellable at all, seems this, that there was something missing in that dying patch of garden, something lacking that it ever searched for, Something, once found and taken, that would turn it rich and living as the rest. More, that there was some living person who could do this for it. Mr. Friend Senior, in a word, Uncle Frank, was this person who, out of his abundant life, could supply the lack unwittingly. For this connection between the dying, empty patch and the person of this vigorous, wealthy and successful man, had already lodged itself in my subconsciousness before I was aware of it. Clearly it must have lain there all along, though hidden. Jamie's words, his sudden pallor, his vibrating emotion of fearful anticipation, had developed the plate, but it was his weeping alone there in the forbidden corner that had printed it. The photograph shone framed before me in the air. I hid my eyes, but for the redness— the charm of my face goes to pieces unless my eyes are clear. I could have cried. Jamie's words that morning about the enormous face came back upon me like a battering ram. Mr. Friend Senior had been so frequently the subject of conversation in the family since I came, I had so often heard him discussed, and 
had then read so much about him in the papers, his energy, his philanthropy, his success with everything he laid his hand to, that a picture of the man had grown complete within me. I knew him as he was, within, or, as my sister would have said, clairvoyantly, and the only time I saw him, when I took Gladys to a meeting where he was chairman, and later felt his atmosphere and presence while for a moment he patronizingly spoke with her, had justified the portrait I had drawn. The rest, you may say, was a woman's wild imagining, but I think rather it was that kind of divining intuition which women share with children. If souls could be made visible, I would stake my life upon the truth and accuracy of my portrait. For this Mr. Friend was a man who drooped alone, but grew vital in a crowd, because he used their vitality. He was a supreme, unconscious artist in the science of taking the fruits of others' work and living for his own advantage. He vampired, unknowingly, no doubt, everyone with whom he came in contact, left them exhausted, tired, listless. Others fed him, so that while in a full room he shone. Alone by himself, and with no life to draw upon, he languished and declined. In the man's immediate neighbourhood you felt his presence draining you. He took your ideas, your strength, your very words, and later used them for his own benefit and aggrandisement. Not evilly, of course. The man was good enough, but you felt that he was dangerous, owing to the facile way he absorbed into himself all loose vitality that was to be had. His eyes and voice and presence devitalized you. Life, it seemed, not highly organized enough to resist, must shrink from his too near approach and hide away for fear of being appropriated, for fear, that is, of death. Jamie, unknowingly, put in the finishing touch to my unconscious portrait. The man carried about with him some silent, compelling trick of drawing out all your reserves, then swiftly pocketing them. At first, you would be conscious of taut resistance. This would slowly shade off into weariness. The will would become flaccid. Then you either moved away or yielded, agreed to all he said with a sense of weakness pressing ever closer upon the edges of collapse. With a male antagonist it might be different, but even then the effort of resistance would generate force that he absorbed, and not the other. He never gave out. Some instinct taught him how to protect himself from that. To human beings, I mean, he never gave out. This time it was a very different matter. He had no more chance than a fly before the wheels of a huge, what Jamie used to call, attraction engine. So this was how I saw him, a great human sponge, crammed and soaked with the life, or proceeds of life, absorbed from others, stolen. My idea of a human vampire was satisfied. He went about carrying these accumulations of the life of others. In this sense, his life was not really his own. For the same reason, I think, it was not so fully under his control as he imagined. And in another hour, this man would be here. I went to the window. My eye wandered to the empty patch, dull black there amid the rich luxuriance of the garden flowers. It struck me as a hideous bit of emptiness yawning to be filled and nourished. The idea of Jamie playing round its bare edge was loathsome.
I watched the big summer clouds above, the stillness of the afternoon, the haze. The silence of the overheated garden was oppressive. I had never felt a day so stifling, motionless. It lay there waiting. The household, too, was waiting, waiting for the coming of Mr. Friend from London in his big motor-car. And I shall never forget the sensation of icy shrinking and distress with which I heard the rumble of the car. He had arrived. Tea was already on the lawn beneath the lime-trees, and Mrs. Friend and Gladys, back from their drive, were sitting in wicker chairs. Mr. Friend, Jr., was in the hall to meet his brother. But Jamie, as I learned afterwards, had shown such hysterical alarm, offered such bold resistance, that it had been deemed wiser to keep him in his room. Perhaps, after all, his presence might not be necessary. The visit clearly had to do with something on the uglier side of life—money, settlements, or what not. I never knew exactly. Only that his parents were anxious, and that Uncle Frank had to be propitiated. It does not matter. That has nothing to do with the affair. What has to do with it, or I should not be telling the story, is that Mrs. Friend sent for me to come down, in my nice white dress, if I didn't mind, and that I was terrified yet pleased, because it meant that a pretty face would be considered a welcome addition to the visitor's landscape. Also, most odd it was, I felt my presence was somehow inevitable, that in some way it was intended that I should witness what I did witness. And the instant I came upon the lawn, I hesitate to set it down, it sounds so foolish, disconnected. I could have sworn, as my eyes met his, that a kind of sudden darkness came, taking the summer brilliance out of everything, and that it was caused by troops of small black horses that raced about us from his person to attack. After a first momentary approving glance, he took no further notice of me. The tea and talk went smoothly. I helped to pass the plates and cups, filling in pauses with little undertalk to Gladys. Jamie was never mentioned. Outwardly all seemed well, but inwardly everything was awful, skirting the edge of things unspeakable, and so charged with danger that I could not keep my voice from trembling when I spoke. I watched his hard, bleak face. I noticed how thin he was and the curious, oily brightness of his steady eyes. They did not glitter, but they drew you with a sort of soft, creamy shine like eastern eyes. And everything he said or did announced what I may dare to call the suction of his presence. His nature achieved this result automatically. He dominated us all, yet so gently that until it was accomplished, no one noticed it. Before five minutes had passed, however, I was aware of one thing only. My mind focused exclusively upon it, and so vividly that I marvelled the others did not scream, or run, or do something violent to prevent it. And it was this, that, separated merely by some dozen yards or so, this man, vibrating with the acquired vitality of others, stood within easy reach of that spot of yawning emptiness— waiting and eager to be filled. Earth scented her prey. These two active centres were within fighting distance, 
He so thin, so hard, so keen, yet really spreading large with the loose around of others' life he had appropriated, so practised and triumphant, that other so patient, deep, with so mighty a draw of the whole earth behind it, and, ah, so obviously aware that its opportunity at last had come. I saw it all as plainly as though I watched two great animals prepare for battle, both unconsciously. Yet, in some inexplicable way, I saw it, of course, within me, and not externally. The conflict would be hideously unequal. Each side had already sent out emissaries. How long before, I could not tell. For the first evidence he gave that something was going wrong with him was when his voice grew suddenly confused. He missed his words, and his lips trembled a moment, and turned flabby. The next second his face betrayed that singular and horrid change, growing somehow loose about the bones of the cheek, and larger, so that I remembered Jamie's miserable phrase. The emissaries of the two kingdoms, the human and the vegetable, had met, I make it out, in that very second. For the first time in his long career of battening on others, Mr. Friend found himself pitted against a vaster kingdom than he knew, and so finding— shook inwardly in that little part that was his definite, actual self. He felt the huge disaster coming. "'Yes, John,' he was saying, in his drawling, self-congratulating voice, "'Sir George gave me that car, gave it to me as a present. Wasn't it sharp?'—and then broke off abruptly, stammered, drew breath, stood up, and looked uneasily about him. For a second— there was a gaping pause. It was like the click which starts some huge machinery moving, that instant's pause before it actually starts. The whole thing, indeed, and went with the rapidity of machinery running down and beyond control. I thought of a giant dynamo working silently and invisible. "'What's that?' he cried, in a soft voice charged with alarm. "'What's that horrid place?' and someone's crying there. Who is it? He pointed to the empty patch. Then, before anyone could answer, he started across the lawn towards it, going every minute faster. Before anyone could move, he stood upon the edge. He leaned over, peering down into it. It seemed a few hours passed, but really they were seconds, for time is measured by the quality, and not the quantity of sensations it contains. I saw it all with merciless, photographic detail, sharply etched amid the general confusion. Each side was intensely active, but only one side, the human, exerted all its force in resistance. The other merely stretched out her feeler, as it were, from its vast potential strength. No more was necessary. It was such a soft and easy victory. Oh, it was rather pitiful. There was no bluster or great effort, on one side at least. Close by his side I witnessed it, for I, it seemed, alone, had moved and followed him. No one else stirred, though Mrs. Friend clattered noisily with the cups, making some sudden impulsive gesture with her hands. And Gladys, I remember, gave a cry. It was like a little scream. Oh, mother, it's the heat, isn't it? Mr. Friend, her father— was speechless, pale as ashes. 
but the instant I reached his side, it became clear what had drawn me there thus instinctively. Upon the other side, among the silver birches, stood little Jamie. He was watching. I experienced, for him, one of those moments that shake the heart. A liquid fear ran all over me, the more effective because unintelligible, really. Yet, I felt that if I could know all, and what lay actually behind, my fear would be more than justified, that the thing was awful, full of awe. And then it happened, a truly wicked sight, like watching a universe in action, yet all contained within a small square foot of space. I think he understood vaguely that if someone could only take his place, he might be saved, and that was why— discerning instinctively the easiest substitute within reach, he saw the child and called aloud to him across the empty patch, "'James, my boy, come here!' His voice was like a thin report, but somehow flat and lifeless, as when a rifle misses fire, sharp, yet weak. It had no crack in it. It was really supplication. And, with amazement, I heard my own ring out, imperious and strong, though I was not conscious of saying it. Jamie, don't move! Stay where you are! But Jamie, the little child, obeyed neither of us. Moving up nearer to the edge, he stood there, laughing. I heard that laughter, but could have sworn it did not come from him. The empty, yawning patch gave out that sound. Mr. Friend turned sideways, throwing up his arms. I saw his hard— Bleak face grow somehow wider, spread through the air, and downwards. A similar thing, I saw, was happening at the same time to his entire person, for it drew out into the atmosphere in a stream of movement. The face, for a second, made me think of those toys of green India rubber that children pull. It grew enormous, but this was an external impression only. What actually happened, I clearly understood— was that all this vitality and life he had transferred from others to himself for years was now in turn being taken from him and transferred elsewhere. One moment on the edge he wobbled horribly, then, with that queer sideways motion, rapid yet ungainly, he stepped forward into the middle of the patch and fell heavily upon his face. His eyes, as he dropped, faded shockingly and across the countenance was written plainly what I can only call an expression of destruction. He looked utterly destroyed. I caught a sound from Jamie, but this time not of laughter. It was like a gulp. It was deep and muffled, and it dipped away into the earth. Again I thought of a troop of small black horses galloping away down a subterranean passage beneath my feet— plunging into the depths, their tramping growing fainter and fainter into buried distance. In my nostrils was a pungent smell of earth. And then all passed. I came back into myself. Mr. Friend, Jr., was lifting his brother's head from the lawn, where he had fallen from the heat, close beside the tea-table. He had never really moved from there, and Jamie, I learned afterwards, had been the whole time asleep upon his bed upstairs, worn out with his crying and 
unreasoning alarm. Gladys came running out with cold water, sponge and towel. Brandy, too, all kinds of things. Mother, it was the heat, wasn't it? I heard her whisper, but I did not catch Mrs. Friend's reply. From her face it struck me that she was bordering on collapse herself. Then the butler followed, and they just picked him up and carried him into the house. He recovered even before the doctor came. But the queer thing to me is that I was convinced the others all had seen what I saw, only that no one said a word about it, and to this day no one has said a word. And that was, perhaps, the most horrid part of all. From that day to this, I have scarcely heard a mention of Mr. Friend, Sr. It seemed as if he dropped suddenly out of life. The papers never mentioned him. His activity ceased, as it were. His afterlife, at any rate, became singularly ineffective. Certainly, he achieved nothing worth public mention. But it may be only that, having left the employ of Mrs. Friend, there was no particular occasion for me to hear anything. The afterlife of that empty patch of garden, however, was quite otherwise. Nothing, so far as I know, was done to it by gardeners, or in the way of draining it or bringing in new earth, but even before I left in the following summer it had changed. It lay untouched, full of great, luscious, driving weeds and creepers, very strong, full-fed, and bursting thick with life.